You are listening to the Calvary Church Podcast, where each episode features a life-transforming message that was previously recorded in one of our services. And now, let's join a service that's already in progress. Tonight is our last installment of our series in the month of September, Celebrating Jesus in the Tabernacle. And we began with this very important understanding that the tabernacle was, in essence, God's master plan. That what God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai in that smoke and fire and lightning and thunder for 40 days and 40 nights was much more than just the Ten Commandments. It was more than just the law. But God was giving Moses his plan, his way that he was going to come and dwell among his people for the very first time. And if you remember, our first lesson I had our blueprints for the building in Oxford by faith. I put them on this holy desk to illustrate to us that this is essentially what Moses was given by God on that mountain. It included measurements and metals and materials. God wasn't just being specific because he had OCD like some of us. God wasn't just being a control freak, although he can be. He can do whatever he wants. He's God. But God had all of these things specified because he was sending very clear messages and illustrations to the children of Israel and to you and I to let us know how much he wanted to be with us and how we were going to approach him. Because at this time in human history, the law was necessary for the children of Israel to be in right relationship with God. God's presence in their lives was going to be predicated upon their obedience. Oh God, that's a scary thing. But God was saying, I'm going to dwell among you. And we understand as spirit-filled New Testament believers that the purpose of the tabernacle in the wilderness was embodied in the man Christ Jesus, and that has been the focus of our series from the beginning, that just as the feast had served to prepare the hearts of God's people for his coming, so the tabernacle would also prepare them for his arrival. And so I want to do a quick recap of all of the areas we've been through leading up to where we're going to end tonight. We started with the white fence around the perimeter of the tabernacle. And through this white fence that you see on the screen, we see an illustration of God's holiness, his separateness, this barrier, if you will. But this fence was more than just a barrier, but it also provided a way in to God's presence. And it's very important that we acknowledge that. Through the courtyard gate, there was only one way to come in. And I love this because it's so simple. It reminds us of what Jesus said very clearly. I am the way. He's the only way, right? Ephesians tells us there's one Lord. There's one faith. There's one baptism. Then we go through the outer court. We came to the first two pieces of furniture. These were made of bronze and they were visible to the outside world. The first was the bronze altar where the priest was to kill an animal and to spill its blood to offer sacrifice for sin. And just as those sacrifices made atonement for their sins, so Jesus, through his death 
on the cross became the ultimate sacrifice for sin. The bronze altar points us to Calvary's cross. The power of the altar in the tabernacle was in the blood. Does that sound familiar to you? And through Jesus' blood, you and I have forgiveness of sins. Then the priest would approach the bronze laver to wash and cleanse himself from the blood and the gore and the yuckiness of the process of sacrificing an animal to cover sins. The laver was placed strategically between the altar and the holy place because the blood on the altar would cover sin, but the water would remove that sin, would remove its remnants from the priest. That priest had to be sanctified and cleansed in order to walk into the presence of God. And from here on, blood and water became symbols of salvation to the Israelites. And as members of the New Testament church, we understand the power of these symbols in a way that those people back then have never experienced it. Because John wrote in chapter 19, verse 34, that when one of the soldiers pierced Jesus in his side, immediately blood and water flowed. That's pretty amazing. Jesus is not just the sacrifice for sin, but he is how we are cleansed from our sin. Sin isn't just removed from us, thank God, but in his plan, we are cleansed from our sin. Its influence is gone. Lingering effects are removed. We are new in Christ Jesus. And so the writer of Hebrews 9 points all the way back to these powerful illustrations in the tabernacle when he said, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience. It's not just about the blood covering your sin. But his spirit cleanses us from dead works. We don't stay at the altar, thank God. But we move on to the labor and it cleanses us from what is dead in our lives now to serve the living God. Hebrews lets us know that if the blood of, work, blood of goats and of animals worked back then, how much more does the blood of Jesus Christ cleanse you and I and make a permanent change in our lives. Amen. And if, if this is all you remember of all of the things that we've tried to share with you through this series, this is worth remembering about this study, that God knew then what it would take to save you and I from our sins. This was not God's plan B. He wasn't making it up as he went along. He wasn't scrambling through the centuries to figure out how to fix us and get back to us. God knew what it would cost, and he did it anyways. And it was always his plan. And so herein is the wonder 
in the power of the revelation of who Jesus is. He is not part of the Godhead. He is the fullness of the Godhead in human form. We do not view Jesus as some part of God's deity, as if he was one of two or one of three separate individuals. Oh, no. Isaiah said he would be God with us. God told Moses in this tabernacle, build it for me so that I will dwell among my people. And so then we go to John's gospel and he picks up where Isaiah and Moses left off to say, and the word became flesh. God became flesh and he dwelt among us. Jesus did not represent God. He was God. Amen. I warned you all last week. I'm very excited about this lesson. So last week we made it to the holy place. And here we found the next three pieces of furniture for us, all made from gold and now all hidden from public view. So isn't that interesting? The bronze stuff was the stuff everyone could see. But the gold stuff was the good stuff. And it meant we were getting closer to the presence of the Lord. And so we looked at last week the golden lampstand. We looked at the golden table of showbread with the 12 loaves for the 12 tribes upon it. And we looked at the golden altar of incense. And I read to you a quote, and I, I think it's so amazing. I want to read it again by Lisa Taylor. The furnishings here in the holy place were both practical and symbolic. And so we looked at the symbolism of the lampstand, that it provided the only light in the tabernacle plan. Because Jesus is the light of the world. He's the only source of truth. He's the only source of hope and light. Jesus is the table of showbread for he is the bread of life. And we talked about how over and over again with these different elements, there's not just a forward looking to earthly things, but it also points to heavenly things. That the table of the presence was not just about that moment in the tabernacle. And it wasn't just pointing us to the Lord's Supper and the table that Jesus shared with them before he died. But it ultimately illustrates what heaven is going to be for you and I. For we will sit at the Lord's table at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Amen. And then finally that Jesus is the golden altar of incense. That place of worship that place of constant prayer, we went over the fact that the golden altar was not a place of sacrifice. But there was this very specific sweet aroma that was to always burn in the tabernacle. And we made the comparison of our prayers because John the Revelator saw the prayers of the saints in golden bowls, right? In the book of Revelation. That they were the prayers of the saints. That our prayers to God are like incense to Him. And so is our Worship, that those are things that you and I can model on this earth, and why wouldn't we? Because we're preparing for heavenly things. That when we practice worship, that when we go to the Lord in prayer, we are considering, we are living out the reality of heaven here on earth. Amen. And finally, that Jesus is our high priest, but more on that in just a few minutes. And so now we're here. This was the final destination the most holy place. This was the most sacred place in the tabernacle, for it was also very much hidden from public view. In fact, you couldn't get into the most holy place 
except through the holy place, which is where we were last week. Unlike the holy place, though, I find this so interesting. This room, the holiest of holies, had no light. It was dark, and only one person could enter one day a year. And so let's look in Exodus chapter 26 to read what God tells Moses about this most holy place. You shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. You shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver, and you shall hang the veil from the class. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy. And so it's interesting to realize that the holiest of holies was a perfect 15-foot cube. That it was only half of the space that occupied the holy place. Here, in the most holy place, we find the last two pieces of furniture that we will consider in the tabernacle tonight. The Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. Yes, they are two separate pieces, although they are stacked together, as you will see from our illustration. While the holy place represented heaven, which is what we talked about last week, the most holy place represents God's glory that is in heaven. Oh, wow. So let's talk about the veil first because I love talking about the veil. So here we go. While the holy place had a curtain that separated it from the outer court, the holiest of holies was separated by what God told Moses would be a veil. It was much more than just a veil, nothing like what we put on on our wedding day. In reality, it was a piece of upholstery unlike anything you and I have ever seen. We probably don't have anything comparable to what this veil, what this curtain was actually like in our homes. We have some seamstresses in here, but I doubt tonight that any of you, Charlotte or Celicia, have tackled a project quite like the veil in the tabernacle. This was a serious piece of material. First Kings actually tells us that the veil was four inches thick, if you can imagine that. I don't know of a needle that would go through uh, a curtain like that, but what do I know? Anyway, the veil was more like a curtain in its function. It was extremely heavy, obviously, and it had blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and it had a cherubim embroidered on it. I think um, our picture kind of depicts that a little bit. But per God's instructions that we read, this veil created a protective barrier. And the purpose of it was to conceal God's holiness because his very presence was on the other side of the veil. And so standing in front of that veil, if you will, was the nearest that anyone could come to God's presence. Remember what God told Moses. No one could see him and live, right? Yes, and that's so different from our experience, is it not? But this is the reality we're talking about right now. And so on the Day of Atonement, and this is why it was such a big deal, the priest would sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat. Only one man, one day a year, could pull that curtain back and enter into the place we're talking about, the holiest of holies. 
This was the Day of Atonement. And because of this, we understand the powerful significance of what happened in the temple the moment that Jesus drew his last breath. We know exactly what happened because Matthew, Mark, and Luke took time to carefully record what happens. In Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 through 51, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit, and behold, the curtain, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. A curtain that big, that heavy, and that thick was torn from the top to the bottom. And when we studied the Feast of Atonement earlier this year, we recognized that this supernatural demonstration was a display of God's power in this moment. It was a visual confirmation of Jesus' fulfillment of that feast day. When Jesus died, his blood fulfilled the law and gave us access to that most holy place. No more veil. Here we see an undeniable example of how the Old Testament and the New Testament work together to point us to Jesus and his plan. Hebrews said, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And so when Jesus died, the veil was torn from the top to the bottom because God had torn it. The sacrificial system was completed. And this is why Jesus' final words before he died ring so true and so powerfully when he said, it is finished. Sin's debt has been paid. No more sacrifices because the ultimate sacrifice had been made. The blood that had been sprinkled on the mercy seat that was Jesus' blood was done for the final time. Jesus, our high priest, had torn that veil, that wall of separation between us and his holiness forever. Amen. And so as the veil hid that Ark of the Covenant, so God's glory is concealed from us in heaven. And so this brings us to the sixth piece of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was made of gold and designed like a throne or the footstool of a king. If you've ever wondered its shape, that was the concept. It was God's throne. It was to represent God's throne in heaven. And so it's very important for our understanding that this Ark was actually the first piece of furniture that God talked to Moses about. It was also the first piece of furniture made for the tabernacle. But wait, there's more. It was also... The first piece of furniture that God had Moses place in the tabernacle. Why? Because it was the most important part in God's plan. And he wanted it to have clear priority. And so this ark contained three things. And I know some of you are familiar with it. But review it with me in its context here. Aaron's rod that budded. The pot of manna. 
and the Ten Commandments. Now, sidebar, I love to point out the fact that this was not the original copy of the Ten Commandments. You remember why? Because Moses threw them. I don't know why that blesses me so much. That he had just had it. I don't know if it's the mom in me. I don't know if it's the pastor in me. I don't know. He was so disgusted. Here he was like in the heavenlies, right? And these morons are dancing around a golden calf like they don't know any better. And so Moses threw them and broke them. And so this is Ten Commandments 1.2, okay? But nevertheless, it was in the ark because it was very important. But another name for the Ark of the Covenant that you've heard interchangeably, I have no doubt, it was the Ark of the Testimony. And I like that Ark of the Testimony term because it really speaks to what the purpose of all of that was inside. That all three items had profound significance to God's people. Aaron's rod represented to them God's deliverance. The pot of manna represented God's provision, and we talked about that with the table. The Ten Commandments represented God's authority through his word. And this is such a powerful point that our resource makes for us. And I wanted to make it as clear as I can tonight that all three of those particular items represented Israel's collective failure. Very sobering to think about, isn't it? For the sake of time, I won't go into the stories behind those three items, but we alluded to the golden calf. So you get the picture. Bad stuff. God's reaching out to them. God's got all these amazing plans for them, and they just can't get it together long enough. And so these three things, these symbols, were of Israel's faithlessness in this amazing God that was leading them through the wilderness with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. But all three of these things also symbolize God's amazing faithfulness to the children of Israel. The rod, the tablets of stone, the manna, all symbolized their failures. But more importantly, they also symbolized God's grace in their lives in spite of their failures. God alone is holy and perfect, and humanity is not. And that's what the contents of the ark clearly illustrate for you and I even now. That God made ultimate provision for our sin through the mercy seat It is the crowning piece of furniture in the tabernacle plan. And it is the ultimate expression, I believe, of God's desire to dwell among us. And so now let's look at this piece, this lid that sits on top of the Ark of the Covenant. That is the mercy seat. And so like everything else in the holy place and in the most holy place, this piece of furniture is made of gold. And it's important to understand that these are two separate pieces. So if you pull up seven pieces of furniture of the tabernacle online, you're only really going to see six pictures. Don't let that throw you. It's because the lid is attached to the box. Got it? Okay. Just want to help you because I was a little confused. Exodus 25 verse 17 says, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them at the ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering 
the mercy seat with their wings. Listen to how specific God is. And they shall face one another. And the faces shall be toward the mercy seat. They're looking down at the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark, you'll put the testimony that I will give you. Those three things. And there I will meet with you. And I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are the ark of the testimony, about everything which I give you in commandment to the children of Israel. And so the mercy seat was also where Moses would meet with God. And it was on the mercy seat, as we've already said, that the priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the day of atonement. And it was right there between those two angels' wings, if you will, that God's presence would appear in a cloud. And so once again, we see the details of the contents of the tabernacle pointing to both a earthly reality and a heavenly reality. When's the first time we see two cherubim described and used so powerfully in Scripture in the Garden of Eden? Two angels were assigned to its gate to protect Adam and Eve Not just from the garden itself, but from making another poor choice in eating of the tree of life. God was actually protecting them. But more than that, these cherubim serve as guardians of God's holiness and are worship leaders in heaven. Revelation 4 tells us that they are like animals. The four living creatures each had six wings full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. And so let's talk about real quick as we go to our app time. Jesus and the holiest of holies. Jesus embodies all that the ark and the mercy seat represent. For Jesus is God with us. He is God's presence personified. And it is why Jesus told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father because God's presence would no longer just be hovering over the mercy seat. God's presence was no longer just for Moses to experience or the priest on the day of atonement, but Jesus was the ultimate expression of God's mercy and willingness to cover our lives and to cover our sins. Jesus represented All that was in the ark of the covenant. The manna, for he is the bread of life. His word, those tablets of stone, they correct us. They guide our lives. And then the rod, God is able. Jesus is our mighty deliverer. Amen. And so these things represent not just the weakness of humanity, but they point to the life-changing reality that God's mercy covers it all. That all of us need that kind of mercy in our lives. Jesus is the ark. He is the mercy seat. And he is also our high priest. Jesus single-handedly replaced 
every piece of furniture in the tabernacle and the high priest. Only God could do that. Jesus did not do away with the tabernacle plan. He fulfilled it all completely and wonderfully. And so when we approach Jesus, we get to experience the reality of everything that the tabernacle provided. Amen. Hebrews 10, verse 10 says, By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after that he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sacrificed sanctified jesus paid it all once and for all but the holy spirit also witnesses to us for after that he said before this is the covenant that i will make with them after those days says the lord i will put my laws into their hearts not just on stone not just in the ark of the covenant I will write them in their minds. And then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Because Jesus paid for it all. Amen. All right. And so now we've arrived at our app time. And you can guess that part, we want to know what part of the most holy place is the most meaningful to you at this point in your life? Is it the Ark of the Covenant? Is it the mercy seat? Is it the contents of the Ark of the Covenant? The manna, the rod, the Ten Commandments? Or is it the veil? Does that just stir you up like it stirs me up? I don't know. But it's a question I want you to consider with your neighbor and why it is that that piece of furniture, that particular detail of the tabernacle really stands out to you right now. Okay? So let's take a few minutes and we'll come back together. Come back together here, and I'll invite you to stand with me. I realize that there's a lot that we could have said, a lot of ways we could have gone with this series, and I've been around people who, you know, act like they have some kind of monopoly on the revelation of the tabernacle and all that can be understood, and well, that's not true, because there's so much to it. And I don't think we have to approach the tabernacle or anything really in Scripture with this intimidation, like it's this veil of mystery and God won't show us because we're not spiritual enough, we're not smart enough. I, I don't believe 
that that's the approach God wants us to have. I don't believe that's how he wants us to feel. I read a lot of verses to you tonight on purpose so that you knew it's all right here for you to read too. It's not just because I've been studying it. It's not just because certain people are really drawn to this idea of the tabernacle, but it's all in God's word for you to understand and receive a revelation of Jesus' love for you because that is the point of the tabernacle plan. And so I want to read to you Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. You've heard it before. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It's talking about the tabernacle plan. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who, is prom- who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And so in the context of the tabernacle and the profound allusions to it in the verses that we just read, the writer of Hebrews is making three very simple charges to you and I to draw near to the presence of God, to hold fast to the truth that we've been given, and to consider or to encourage one another with the presence of God and the truth that we've been given. And to think that sitting on top of our failure that was so well represented in the Ark of the Covenant is God's crowning piece of the tabernacle, the mercy seat. Because it was his number one goal with all of the tabernacle. And that's why I know that the tabernacle and all of the wonderful things about it are for you and I to understand and appreciate because all of us need mercy and all of us can receive that mercy. That's what Jesus made possible with his death on the cross. And so this mercy is meant to be shared. I've uh, heard those verses there that we read, verses 24 and 25, you know, about provoking one another to good works and not forsaking the assembling of ourselves. I've heard those verses all my life as my dad was always reminding me on why we had to go to church so much. (laughs) Chris, the Bible says we have to go to church and the closer we get to the rapture, the more we should go. That was the NRP2 translation. (laughs) Message received. I got it. But it wasn't until today that I understood the full context of those verses and I was very struck by that. You see, when you and I read the Bible, you know, there's those, those margins, those separations, those themes, you know, that translators do to help us better understand the scripture. But understand that when Hebrews was written, it was really all one continuous thought. There were no page breaks. There were no verse numbers. And so I say that to say the writer of Hebrews talks about this glorious truth of the tabernacle and what Jesus did for us. And in the same breath says, encourage each other and don't quit coming to the tabernacle while you're waiting for that day man I don't have it all figured out but there's something very powerful 
about connecting those two things. And the thing that I, I walk away with, with the mercy seat being kind of the center of our lesson tonight, is it, it's because God's mercy is meant to be shared. It's not limited to the tabernacle anymore. But because we're recipients of God's mercy and we identify with the children of Israel, there was their failures right there in God's box. And on top of that box was the mercy seat to say, it doesn't matter how great your failures are, God. Guys, because I'm going to cover it all with my mercy and with my blood. And if that is meant to be you and I's testimony, then that should help us. And that should motivate us to tell other people that can be their story too. And so I pray that you know Jesus better. I hope you love him more. I hope you understand the power of the cross. That God's plan was always to go to Calvary himself. To extend his mercy and his presence in our lives every day. Amen. Lord, I love you and I thank you. For your great presence that I feel, God, whenever we talk about your word, whenever we think about what you've done for us, Lord, you just show up so powerfully. And I thank you for that. I thank you, God, that, that your truth is for all of us, that your word is not meant to be uh, mysterious or mystical in any way. But, God, we've read so many verses about the tabernacle plan and its meaning and purpose in our lives because you want us to know. You want us to understand how much you loved us. You want us to somehow comprehend how involved you want to be in our lives, that we have access to your very presence, that if we can approach your throne of grace boldly, then so can everyone else. And that it's our job to encourage each other, to exhort each other with this understanding that your presence is real, that it's tangible, that it's available, and that it will transform if we will allow it to. And so, God, with that understanding, we are not going to forsake the assembling of ourselves together because the church's purpose is beyond this earth. But when we come together, we're not just getting through life, but, God, we are preparing for eternal life with you. And so, God, I pray you go with us. Let us feel your mercy overflowing in our lives. Let us recognize your presence for all that it is. We thank you for all of these things, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. This podcast was brought to you by the Calvary Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. For more information about the Calvary Church, please visit our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Consider joining us for a service where you will find friendly people, high-energy music, and life-transforming preaching and teaching from a biblical worldview. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or on our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.